who have seats near you over there while you're praying. Uh, together, uh, blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, um, I'm going to sum up <clears throat> what I've sought to uh, communicate. Uh, and again, there are plenty of places uh, here, uh, in, in right over here. I'm going to, that, that's my last logistical announcement. I'm going to sum up <clears throat> what I've sought to present in the last uh, eight or nine weeks on identity. And then, uh, from then, uh, next week, I'm going to begin, actually next week, someone else will teach this class, but beginning with, with the class we'll meet, just as always. But in two weeks, I personally will begin a new series on uh, the 59th chapter of Isaiah, the, the extraordinarily pungent, penetrating passage about the human situation and the divine uh, response to it in the 59th of Isaiah. And that will be the uh, class that I'll do through the beginning of Advent. So uh, today I'll finish on identity, and I'll speak for about 20 minutes, uh, maybe 25, and we'll have a little bit of time at the end on the nature of human identity and try to sum up what I've been trying to communicate over the last 10 weeks. Would you join me in reading the 12th verse of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the third chapter, together, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now there are, there are uh, basically uh, two <coughs> ideas. I'd like to say what they are in respect to human identity, and then I'd like to say what the basis is <coughs> for uh, believing that this is an accurate uh, picture of uh, the way that God, uh, as I uh, understand the Bible to teach it, speaks to human identity. The uh, first uh, idea is an idea that I so often present to you, but it actually cannot be presented uh, often enough. It is, if I didn't believe in God, I would say that it is the idea. It is the idea which ought to ultimately condition all university research, all scientific investigation, and all human affairs, even if <coughs> there were not a God, but there is. But I would say that the empirical uh, observation about the nature of life that the first part of this verse has about identity is a crucial one. Not St. Paul is writing that I have already obtained it or I'm already perfect. The idea, as I so often tell you in uh, theology, but it, it, this is, you could say, you know, it's very important that everybody have an idea. You know, you, you, what is the, your idea? What is the idea that motivates your life? There are <coughs> Usually there's one or two. There's not many more than that. Usually there's one idea. That's not overly intellectual to say that at all. It's just to say that people that have a sense of an idea are far more um, likely to have a meaningful contribution in their human life on this earth. They're far more likely to have some kind of a meaningful sense of purpose and identity. And the idea, of course, this presupposes that the idea is an accurate one, and a lot of people have ideas that are not accurate. A lot of people go through life with ideas that are rapidly, uh, you know, seen to be inaccurate. And that's good because uh, if your idea is wrong, it will usually be unmasked through experience. But the idea here in uh, the uh, 
in the Christian uh, thing is uh, S-I-N-P, and that is simply simul justus et peccator, the Latin word that we are justified means loved, and I'm just using modern lingo, peccator means human. It literally means uh, a sinner. And, and justus means just before God, or able to have a clean conscience before God. But um, for us, the very easy shorthand is to be loved and human at the same time. And this is what constitutes human experience. If you believe that you're loved, <coughs> but you're, you, you can't be loved if you're yourself, that love will always be insecure. It'll always be fragile. Your, that, that sense of belovedness will always be fragile because if he only knew or if she only really understood the way I really am, then I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be loved anymore. Similarly, if all I was was human, here I am, signed, sealed, and delivered, I'm yours. One of the great soul songs of all time. Ken Shea, that's for you. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the power of that, uh, if I'm, uh, if I'm uh, just, this is the way I am, that would quickly lead me not to be loved. Because anybody who's critical would not love you uh, if, if you just present yourself. In other words, being loved and being yourself would have to be the key to the human condition. If you're just yourself, somebody, some people aren't going to love you, and probably the people who know you best. And if you're, if you're just sort of out there to be loved, you won't fully be yourself. You'll be presenting a false front, and that's what most relationships are until they become rooted in this idea, which is fundamentally a Christian idea. This is an idea that came into the world through the ministry of Jesus. In my view, it is not an idea which is characteristic of other faiths or other approaches to life. But the first thing is, and it all is here, not that I have already obtained this. There is something, excuse me, there is something within reach, and in fact, it's already partially been true in my experience. I've seen love. I've, I've been loved, and I am loved, or I believe I'm loved by God. If nobody else loves me, he will never give me up. But I'm, I'm also uh, uh, in the not yet. I'm still human, and that is the first great thing about identity. It, 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 our human identity is something that is conferred by love from outside, ultimately we would say by God's special loving for every person equally, and uh, in the light of the way I really am, not the way I'm supposed to be or I think somebody wants me to be. And that's why um, uh, Jim Pittman's words today from the lectern were so magnificent, because he said, and I had not heard them until just then, he said that this is the one place, and of course there are many uh, exceptions and sins and judgments and self-righteousness. But in theory, the Christian church would be one place where, um, where there is no respecter of anything about you that is uh, human or extrinsic or descriptive or predicated of you. That would not, you, could, you would not have to be a certain kind of person to have a welcome here. Now, we all know that sin can works all sorts of ways and places, but that would, in fact, be a legitimate an interpretation of Jesus' ministry. So that's the first thing. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, loved and human. Not either or, but both and. Second great idea is that he says, uh, let's read the next phrase, it begins with the word but. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Well, what that is, says, is that the origin of action is a because. The origin of motives, the origin of love, 
the origin of your life being some kind of a labor of love that is not simply consumed by the desire or need to be affirmed, which is what it really is about, humanly speaking. But all that kind of, all the love that comes out of a desire to be affirmed is uh, flotsam and jetsam and disappears when you die. It has no meaning um, because everybody's needy. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, complimented? Um, but the, 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 his, his action, his pressing on, is not a pressing on to get more, uh, to get more out, of, out of, tell me more about how terrific I am, which is basically what, uh, what America is about in many ways in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Is a this happens in all cultures and places, but it, our particular mood has been very much based on, t tell me how great I am all the time, and uh, tell me in school, Tell me in college, tell, just tell me a lot, and, and I, I, I never want to, I want a lot. You know, there was a great article in The Economist, a letter in The Economist magazine, which Gene Ball very kindly gives us. And in the article it said all this stuff about Americans being obese. Well, we all know we all have a problem, and I'm one. I don't make any bones about it, so to speak. But, um, <laughs> what, uh, but what is very true is this fellow from France was writing, and he said an undeniably thing. He said the, reasons America, the reason American people are overweight is that they eat too much too often. <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, is there any real? Could you really disagree with that statement? I mean, he cut through all the baloney. We eat too much too often. Well, um, the 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 real uh, fact of life that is that is powerfully helpful in the world, life that you yourself are happy about, life that you feel satisfied in creating and offering and giving, is really always out of a because. It's because, and we know this, as I've often told you, from romantic love. That that is always the, if you really want to find out how God relates to man, study romantic love, because this is so deep in people. Bishop Butler called this the analogy of faith. The, the, if you want to find out about God, find out about the way it's it takes place in the world, and that will give you a clue. Take that together with the ministry of Jesus to the, to the troubled and the needy and the, and the people who are in the edges and who, the, who really needed him, and you have a picture of what God is like. And we know that in romantic love and, and also in friendship and with children and teachers and with, with godparents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends, when you are loved, when you are actively supported, you can do things that you couldn't do without it. You are able to do things that you couldn't. And people who are not actively supported by whether it's a wife or a husband or, or a really loving daughter or a, or a really fine and marvelous dad uh, or a, 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 a person, a teacher who really believes in you and actively uh, is willing to go out for you, those people are people that end up pressing on. They are the people who end up pressing on. Um, and so the word here is because. So point one was, simul justus et peccator. This is really the great idea of, of, of human identity. And, and this is the, the, in fact, I would say I have no problem in telling you that, in believing to you that this is the, this is the diagnosis of what human life is all about. And number two is that, that moving forward to give uh, is a because. Now, let me say one other thing. I want to say something about the because. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, of course, I could say to you, well, it's, it's you know, if you get really 
if a man is really loved by a beautiful woman, or a woman that he considers beautiful, that has motivating power. Or if you had a college professor who really actively showed fatherly, unself-interested, genuine love for you when you were going through a period in your adolescence when you needed support, that has enormously motivating power. That makes people end up choosing careers. If your dad was in your corner all the time, or your mom was in your corner all the time, that's great, but, and that's very analogy. But what is this as it relates to, relates to Christian faith? Faith. And this is where I want to conclude. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Well, that occurs uh, from two uh, points of, 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 of light. Is Mary Smith here? Well, Mary and I had a remarkable discussion this morning on this question, and, uh, but, I, uh, but uh, that'll be another time. What this means is that Christianity, or Christ, gives us motivating power in two ways, and then I'm done. First is, the events of which we are so, um, so impressed, specifically the events that happened uh, in the life of Christ and specifically during what we call Holy Week, the last, uh, uh, the last week of his earthly life. These events, we believe, actually occurred. So the because has a factual basis and it has an existential basis. Now bear with me for a second. Um, if you have not seen it, please get off the internet or find, or it's, it'll be, it's on our website. I've, I've asked Charles to put it on our website. We had 159,000 hits last month on the Advent website. 159,000 hits, which is a tremendous source of encouragement. But this article, which came out on the Wall Street Journal on Thursday, called A Plain Stone Box, it was the best treatment by, uh, Her wasn't it by Herschel Shanks? It was, the, it was the best treatment of the discovery that's been made because A, he knows what he's talking about, and B, he has let, you know, remember that song by uh, Bonnie Raitt, Let's Give Him Something to Talk About? This is worth, in the different context, this is worth, <laughs> this is worth, this is worth talking about. Uh, the, the, uh, I've always said that my dream, but it has not happened yet, is to take a group of people from the Advent, maybe 60, it will happen, we hope, but it hasn't happened yet, to that corner of the Jerusalem, of the, of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, where the only uh, specific artifacts uh, that come out of the life of Jesus of Nazareth actually are gathered, and they are quite remarkable. Many Christians don't know they're there, many Jews don't know they're there, many people don't know they're there, but they, they include the only, um, the only, the original of the only uh, inscription to Pontius Pilate that has been found in Palestine. It's there. They include the bones and the ossuary, which is a box of Caiaphas, the high priest that condemned Jesus to death. It's authentic. It, this is not, this is not uh, Orlando uh, Bible Land. And I, I like that play. I'm, I'm very open to that place. But I mean, don't worry about. It. I'm open to it. But th th this is this is the Jerusalem. This is the Israel Museum, uh, and and they have the bones in the box of Caiaphas. They have the wine jars that prove that Jesus's account of the the story in John of the changing the water into wine was based on a far more historical reality than anyone had previously known until 20 years ago. And they have the bone of a crucified man 
time, no one knew how people were crucified. We knew that thousands were, both in Spartacus and in Palestine and throughout the Roman Empire, but we didn't know exactly how it was done until 1968 when they found the remains of a young crucified man, obviously not Jesus, we know exactly who it was, who was crucified for some political offense, and they actually have the bone, the heel bone of his crucifixion and the nail, and, and we have learned now exactly how a man was crucified at the time of Christ. Now, what was found uh, about uh, several years ago, actually, for 200 bucks, it was paid for, uh, and a Jewish collector who said a fabulous thing. He, they said, why weren't you interested? Because he read Aramaic. It's in the original language. He was a very cultivated man. And they asked him, why weren't you interested? He said, well, I just assumed that the Son of God must, he was a Jewish man, obviously. He said, I just had assumed that the Son of God couldn't have a brother. <laughs> very interesting thought thinking. That's why he kept it for about 30 years until by chance at a cocktail party, he met a French archaeologist who's actually the real, the real thing. And he examined it, and it's 80%, 75% clear that this is the man. And the reason we know it is because, A, it has three names. So by, it's like when you, you have a valise and you, you, uh, you have a, a lock on it, it has three letters, you know, th th three numbers. Well, uh, with Mary and I, it's our anniversary, but it's one, two, nine. One, two, two, nine in our minds. That's how we do it. One, two, nine. Well, there are very few one, two, nines out there in the sequence. Well, to have, um, in those days, no one ever put who your brother was. It was always James, the son of Alphaeus. It was never who your brother was. <coughs> and uh, th this man, Jesus' natural brother, who was a younger brother, I believe in the virgin birth of that question, but he did have brothers later. And his younger brother, James, was known as James the Righteous. And his martyrdom was described at length in the earliest history of the Christian church called Eusebius's history. I think it's a fourth century history, but I found it in my old library, the history of the martyrdom of James the Lord's brother in those days put in quotes because people are a little nervous about what the implications might be. But it's in here, and it's also in Josephus's history, which is not a Christian history, called the Antiquities, when uh, Josephus uh, says that an Ananias thought that he had a convenient opportunity because the Roman governor was dead, and Albinus, the new prefect, was on the way from Italy. This is uh, speaking Josephus, the Jewish historian. So he assembled a council of judges and brought before it James, the brother of Jesus, who was known as the Christ, on a charge of breaking the law, and handed him over to be stoned. But the most fair-minded people in the city were most indignant of this because, because it was an illegal thing to do uh, under their law without the man, the Roman, who would uh, say it was okay, and sent secretly to the king, imploring him to write to Ananias the priest to stop behaving in this way. Some of them waylaid the Roman governor on the road from Alexandria. Remember Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor? They waylaid Albinus on the road from Alexandria, Egypt, and explained that it was illegal for Ananias to assemble a council without his authority. Albinus wrote an angry letter to Ananias, then deposing him. However, James was stoned. Uh, those bones uh, which were taken in the year of the siege as uh, special and important uh, precious family remains, the box was too heavy and it was left. And uh, my first point, and then I'm done, was that the because does rest on a rational basis. It's not the whole story. It's not like you can prove it one to one, but there is in fact a basis for this experience that is uh, rooted in a tremendous amount of uh, positive information from the time. People who say that's not true just don't like it. 
I was with a bunch of scholars the other day in Atlanta. We were on a board. A lot of people don't like us. They say we are knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. <laughs> and I'm on this board. Of, it's a Christian board. It's not Episcopalian. Don't worry. And, uh, <laughs> but we're on this board, and uh, somebody said that we, the most, uh, the most um, we're all, we all have earned PhDs from European universities, as it turns out. But the, the, we only, the heavy grief we get is from academic theologians who are university theologians who don't like us because they think we are too, um, we, we, are, we, are, we, we, we plead for a point of view. We don't talk about discussion. We talk about persuasion. And, and academic theologians don't like that. And we get this very bad press. And I understand that. And I know we are a little bit kind of into our thing. And this guy said, he's a very, very gifted Lutheran theologian from uh, California. He said, the reason these theologians say this is because they don't like what we say. Now, that, you may say, well, that's a, is that true? That usually is true. If someone writes you off because they don't think you're smart enough or they don't think you're well-dressed enough or they don't think you come from the right side of town, the reason they write you off is they've already decided to write you off because they don't like you. <laughs> it, there's usually an ulterior motive. Well, um, the power of this is that there's a rational basis. But there's one other thing. There's, uh, it's also because it says, Christ Jesus made me his own. What has happened in the history of human existence is that this particular um, expression of compassion that we would say represents, to quote a phrase, the human face of God, has had a bewildering ability to uh, present himself in times of human affliction and need. Um, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, and there's a lot to be said about this, but most people sitting in this room would probably say that at a point when I really needed to hear that I was forgiven, uh, still beloved, and still in the hands of, of God's uh, eternal care, I, I heard that word. I heard that voice. That voice. That voice came to me in a variety of different ways. Look at your children. Think about when your children have had terrible problems. And uh, you've seen it time and time again, rescued. And not always, and I know there are some terrible, terrible tragedies, but very often you've seen when, you know, you were like Moses at the Red Sea. Your child was like Moses at the Red Sea. He'd flunked out of this place, and he'd burned all, burned all his bridges back at the other place. You know, that kind of thing? Holden Caulfield. And, uh, and God uh, delivered uh, your child, found a remarkable way, specifically when you got down on your knees and expressed the fact that you you had nowhere to go but up. Um, and I want to read you a letter, which is the last because, and then we're done. Because on a rational basis, and because because of this one uh, man, which has been uh, expressed in uh, Mary's and our lives uh, time and time again. Um, this is a letter from a young widow whose husband uh, uh, died at the breakfast table uh, one morning when their three little girls were present at breakfast, and he had a, a coronary arrest and died uh, right there. And uh, this uh, was a terrible, 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 terrible loss, the like of which we've also seen here in Birmingham, but this was not in Birmingham. And what had happened to this uh, man, uh, he had, uh, about three years before this happened, he, had, he was ahead of a very, very successful business in the Northeast, and he, was, he became so depressed and so caught up with his own personal demons that his wife called and said, let's call the man Bill. Um, Bill is uh, at the Charlotte Airport, and he's had a, an anxiety attack so great that he cannot, um, he, cannot, uh, he cannot come home. He says he cannot even move out of his way. And I said, well, why don't you get him to take the little quick trip over to Charleston? 
and, and we'll look after him and see what we can do. And when we met this man, he was in a, an anxiety state that had been um, precipitated by a very heavy problem at business that was, uh, had to be seen to be believed. And about um, five weeks later, he attended an Ash Wednesday service that, Marian, that I was presiding at. And uh, he, um, for some reason, it spoke to him. And he walked out after the, walked around the garden of this beautiful old church and said uh, afterwards that he felt finally that the person he'd always thought about had really uh, spoken to him and given him hope. And it was a dramatic, a dramatic change. And life turned around in a most remarkable way, so remarkable that I invited him to go with me when I would take trips to churches and ask him to give the story. Now, he died later as we all do, and uh, his picture is on my desk upstairs. But I do want to uh, say what his wife wrote me on Ash Wednesday, 1996, which I believe was four years after the event of his death and about eight years after God, uh, in his uh, presence of compassion and Christ-likeness, appeared to this man, not in a visionary way as such, but in a visionary way. And she wrote me this, uh, Dearest Paul, when I question this play called Life without knowledge of the final scene, Ash Wednesday reminds me of a significant act. It was a special day for Bill because he felt God's presence. This day also embodies Craig's character of being utterly human. My sorrow runs deep in the knowledge, da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, and da-da-da-da-da-da, but please remember a day in a life that God worked through to inspire greatness. Now, why that uh, picture remains on our desk, in a, both at home and mine up here, and why this letter, uh, which was actually enclosed in a book, uh, which I have, meant so much, is that we saw um, the because uh, occur not just in a box that is going to be in Toronto in November, which is really good, but we saw it in a man uh, who, when uh, the chips were down and had nowhere to turn, uh, heard the great words, you know, of come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and uh, had a most remarkable experience of the hand of God on his particular life. So that's why, uh, because Christ Jesus has made me his own, has some credibility in our lives. Now, we have a few minutes for discussion or questions, uh, comments. Who wants to come in with something based on your own experience of this or what, uh, what I've tried to say about identity? Ronnie. Stand up, Ronnie, if you would. Short, but stand up. Yes, it is striking that now in an age which is very rationalistic, right, that we should be finding these archives. They've all turned up in the last 30 years, which happens that has to do because of archaeology and because of modern investigation. But it is a remarkable thing. I want so much to take you to that center in the Jerusalem, uh, the Israel Museum. I, I, Mary, I mean, have you ever seen anything like it standing in those places? Stand up.
Uh, people who work in Muslim evangelism, which is a very, very heavy idea, certainly from their point of view, um, will say that a high percentage of people who become Christians, or let, they don't want to use that word, followers, it's because, of, uh, because the Lord appears in a dream. Other comments or thoughts about what I've tried to say? Did you all see the 60 Minutes on the McNeil Lear? I mean, not McNeil Lear, uh, is it called Lear now or McNeil? Whatever it is called, uh, Neil Sadaka. Uh, have you? Did you all see? They interviewed Herschel Shanks and another guy, and uh, the interview was magnificent. And I'm deeply grateful to uh, to Bill Times, who sent me the email uh, account of the interview that was so well done this week. Anything else on the big question of identity? Anything you've been wanting to ask or say? Well, um, thank you for bearing me out. Um, what I said in the bulletin I mean today uh, in the adventure, when you think about identity, think about the 1980 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in which uh, a brilliant, I'll be very distinctly anti-Christian movie. That movie has a distinct anti-Christian edge in regard to one scene. But uh, the movie is powerful because um, when the aliens, uh, uh, the pods, take over the identity of a person, the person sheds his, quote, skin, his previous identity, and it's this kind of filmy, gauzy kind of little net that gets thrown away in the trash, and the people in San Francisco, wouldn't you know, uh, collect it. And the fact that this is happening in San Francisco is so revealing. Because we think of that as the place where everybody is really able to be themselves. And they shed their identity as in a New York minute uh, in San Francisco because their identity is like everybody's identity in light of this view is simply a f filmy, gauzy, uh, a diaphanous little nothing that uh, is nothing compared to the weight of the powerful um, uh, uh, interchange of love that the Christian faith really believes happens with people. Let's say a prayer together. Why don't we say the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 